the perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Tom Fernelli. That's Bud Elliott. I'm Chip Patterson coming to you live at YouTube.com slash Cover 3 and all across the 24-7 Sports Facebook network. Thanks for hanging out. Smash that subscribe and smash that like and come and join us in the chat. Uh, a lot of movement, a lot of news to get to since the last time we joined you. So we got to talk about all the coordinator shakeups and you know, we're not going to put our final grades on this, but we are looking ahead because once this last round of assistant carousel stops spinning, we are going to be back with some assistant coaching carousel grades and recaps for all of you. Plus a little bit of news, uh, sort of coming out about Texas and Oklahoma's SEC future. Why are we having so much trouble reaching a deal? When do we think Texas and Oklahoma will join the SEC? And by the time they do, what does the SEC look like? Where are Texas and Oklahoma in their respective programs? Where is the SEC at that time? All that and more coming up. Uh, but we begin with the defensive side of the ball at Alabama. Pete Golding, of course, is going to be off to Ole Miss. And after we had had some, uh, you know, some conversations about where's Nick Saban going to go on the defensive side of the ball. Well, he's, he's probably going to go with someone familiar. He's probably going to go with someone who knows him. Hard to get more familiar. Then Kevin Steele returning for his third stint with Nick Saban's Alabama Crimson Tide. Kevin Steele spent this past season with the Miami Hurricanes. Much more on the Canes later because now we've got some significant openings for Mario Cristobal as well. What do we make of Kevin Steele as the hire uh, to replace Pete Golding at Alabama? I, I think it's probably a good move. Um, he's familiar with Kevin Steele. I think if you look at Kevin Steele's stops, you kind of know what you're going to get, right? Obviously, tried to become the head coach at Auburn, was not successful in doing so, but did run a really good job, a really good defense when he was at Auburn. I thought he did a fine job at his prior stops as well. Uh, likely had the best performance, I think, of anybody that played that Joe Burrow uh, offense in 2019. Oh, yeah. and, and like generally, I think, knows how to coach defensive football. And most importantly here, knows how to coach under Nick Saban. I don't think he's going to be leading a coup to take over Nick Saban, most likely, so probably no 
no real fears there. Uh, and I would rather work for Nick Saban than Mario Cristobal, even though both are, are you know guys that, that certainly demand a lot of their coordinators. But I, I think it's fairly well accepted out there that he probably wanted to hire Jeremy Pruitt, mm-hmm. but either didn't or couldn't, some combination thereof. And I think Kevin Steele is a better hire than the assumed alternative to Pruitt, the backup plan to Pruitt, who was Todd Grantham, who was already on staff mm. and has now found the job with the Saints. So I, I think I'd rather have Steele than Grantham if I couldn't have Pruitt. Yeah, I, I think that as far as defensive coordinators go, <clears throat> Steele is a perfectly fine hire. He's been doing it for like 40 years. He's been at Alabama now. This is his third stint. Don't really have any questions. I'd rather just do crazy conspiracy stuff here. Um, is Steele still working for Auburn and this is part of the coup or was Nick Saban behind the coup the entire time trying to install Kevin Steele as the head coach at Auburn? Never know. Also was Steele not Saban's first defensive coordinator hire at Alabama? He was. Oh, seven. Yes. Pretty sure. But then he got moved off of it to linebackers coach. Mm -hmm. I'm saying like Tom Brady announces his retirement last week. Now there's the whole movement. Oh, come back and sign with new England for a day and retire. It's Kevin Steele, Nick Saban's last defensive coordinator at Alabama. And is there a chance, like, I mean, maybe, you know, Jeremy Pruitt was may, probably, from what you're hearing, maybe may have been the preferred target. But is there a chance this job wasn't as desirable as maybe you would think because coaches aren't sure how much longer they're going to be there with Nick Saban sticking around? Uh, well, it's an interesting question, I guess it depends on on what situation you were leaving, right? Pruitt's not leaving a situation that mm-hmm. is better th- than this. I would rather coach Alabama's defense than Miami's. Miami's, so Miami's yeah. Right. Like Miami's recruiting well, but I'd still rather have Bama's talent. Uh, not a huge fan of Todd Grantham's track record. So I, I guess it just depends point. on like who else you might hire. But that's my point. Look at the three names that have been closely connected to this gig. Like you think you look at what he has done at Alabama, like as far as the offensive coordinator side, I mean, I know some Alabama fans will get to it shortly, aren't completely sold on Tommy Reese. But typically, when you look at the coordinator hires he's made, they tend to be pretty solid hires. Then when you're hearing the names that are floating for Alabama's defensive coordinator position, and again, I think Kevin Steele is a good defensive coordinator. I think Jeremy Pruitt would have been a good defensive coordinator. Todd Grantham was going to blitz. But other than that, it was like, where were the hot young names that you would expect to be like, ooh, I get a chance to go be the defensive coordinator for Alabama and take over that kind of talent and maybe further my career and get myself a head coaching job out of this somewhere? Why weren't those names interested in the gig? Or was Saban just not interested in hiring those guys? That's a really good question. So if we had done this show last year and said, hey, it's the end of 2021, predict what Bama's going to have to do at the end of 22 since, since Golding's going to move on. I think I would have told you Doug Belk who did a really good job with Houston, had worked under Nick Saban, had been in that system. But Houston this year took a major step back defensively. Uh, now, part of that, they lost six starters in the span of a week to injury, and that really uh, – it seemed to correlate as they gave up like 70-something mm-hmm. points to to, uh, to SMU. But that's a hard sell, right? A guy who has not been a D coordinator for that long, and they were one of the worst defenses in the American this year. Uh, but maybe you know that like that's one – uh, obviously, Jim Leonard would be the one where it's like if, that's but it's not the, Saban's tree, right? Yeah. Like Saban's going to want to run Nick's defense. I think he's more open to doing different things offensively, right? Like he's never really brought in somebody defensively that doesn't run 
what he runs for the most part. Like even with Golding, they they kind of try to marry the two styles. I, I'm a little surprised they were not able, and I don't know who they went after him, but I would probably say like, do you like Muschamp as a DC? Do, do you like Sher as a DC? The, the Georgia's guys, right? Um, but they got a pretty good thing going in Georgia right now. So mm-hmm. I do think that being the defensive coordinator for Kirby Smart right now is a better job than being the defensive coordinator for Nick Saban at Alabama because your talent is comparable and your runway is longer. And to answer your first question, Tom, if we were by placing bets, I do think Kevin Steele is the last defensive coordinator hire that Nick Saban will make. I think the familiarity allows um, you know, Saban to not stress. Like mm-hmm. if, they, if they're underperforming, then you know, he might make a change, but he at least knows that he doesn't have to explain something twice. All right. You know, like he doesn't have to come back and keep tabs on Kevin Steele to make sure that he's following everything. So it's it's almost like a, a move that allows Saban to free himself up to focus on the things that he thinks isn't working, which probably includes the offensive side of the ball. One more uh, question here before we get there. So Kevin Steele, based on his long track record throughout the SEC, throughout the South, uh, I always associate him as being a good recruiter, but then I went to his 24-7 profile, and I understand that sometimes a little bit difficult. You know, who's going to get the primary? Who who gets credit uh, for a recruit? So I guess, like, Bud, what is the what, what is the recruit? Is is Kevin Steele one of those guys that you just you, you can put a check mark by him, like knows how to recruit the big dogs in the SEC? This is not going to be a place where we see any drop-off because Nick Saban could have three more years. I mean, there's still the importance of stacking class after class as the Crimson Tide did just lock down the number one class in the country last Wednesday. All right, so Kevin Steele for a long time was known as a really strong recruiter. Like Even back to the days when, when, when he was an assistant for, for, you know, for Bobby Bowden. Um, I don't think he was quite as good of a recruiter at the end of his time at Auburn. And this year, I was just listening to the Through the Smoke podcast from inside the UR 24-7 Sports Miami site. And they said they really could only credit him as the primary recruiter for one player in Miami's class. So I think it's an open question as to whether he still has the same recruiting chops that he once did. I mean, how old is Kevin now? He's got to be a a good bit old. Yeah, I mean, he's not 45 anymore. Um, He's 64. doesn't mean you can't do it, but he's he's getting getting up there in age. And and most of our top recruiters out there are not in the mid-60s. I... Man, I, th- I think Kevin Steele is a perfectly fine, acceptable hire. I do believe he's the last defensive coordinator that Nick Saban will hire. And making this move allows Nick Saban to focus all of his energies in places other than checking after the, his defensive coordinator. I did think about the fly sweep. I know that's disrespectful. I'm sorry. I just, I was thinking about Kevin Steele and, you know, one of our editors reached out. He was like, you know, let's, let's really build this out. Let's think about the whole Rolodex. I mean, this guy was a head coach at Baylor. Didn't go well, but, mm-hmm. you know, he's been an interim coach twice. You know, Auburn obviously was a little bit of a different scenario where you're actually a coach versus just sort of babysitting the program as he did for Tennessee in between Jeremy Pruitt and Josh Heupel. But he was defensive coordinator as Tavon Austin ran the fly sweep into the end zone. For five first half touchdowns and a 70 to 33 loss to uh, West Virginia for the Clemson Tigers back in the Orange Bowl. So, you know, this was an internet moment, too. Like, I, I don't, I guess the offseason, we, can we do this for a minute? So, if you're a yeah. young listener out there or young viewer and you don't remember this, it was Holgo at West Virginia. They had some real studs on offense, and Clemson had a, 
they had just won the ACC for the first yeah, time first in 20 time. years. Mm-hmm. You know, Taj Boyd, like it was, they picked up a couple losses that season. So they weren't really in the mix for the BCS title, but it was a, it was an ascending moment for Dabo's program for sure. And there was a coach named Bob Stitt at Colorado School of the Mines, right? Yep. Which is D2 or D3 or NAIA? They're, I think they're D3. I think it's D3, but I'm not 100% sure. Like non-scholarship Colorado School at the Mines. And this set off like a kind of like an internet, you know, Twitter moment. We were all watching it. And in the post game, Dana the Holgerson, who's now the head coach at Houston, who was a really good OC on the air raid tree, um, he shouted out and he was like, yeah, uh, I took that fly sweep play from Bob Stitt and like home field made shirts about it. And it was just, it was, uh, it was pretty cool. And people were like, who's this Bob Stitt guy? And everybody was like, trying to figure it out. But for that night, Kevin Steele did not figure it out. Homefield still has some pretty sweet Colorado School of Mines gear. I, you know, I hate the legacy of that play that I hate is that that counts as a completion for a quarterback now. But that's why it works, because if he drops it, it's not a fumble. It's an incomplete pass. I know, but I think that, you know, statistically, I would like for that to count as a rush. Like if the pass only travels less than a, a yard forward, that should be a rush. It should be a, considered a handoff. That's just me if I was making the rules. I was hating on CJ Stroud like a last year. I think he had picked up maybe five touchdowns from these fly sweeps. I was trying to pull him off his touchdown count. <laughs> Talk about things that make uh, fan bases mad at us. Yeah, the the score at halftime halftime of that game was forty nine to twenty. Thirty five points for West Virginia scored in the second quarter alone. And as I was sitting there in that press box. Train was going to be the halftime show. <laughs> Drops Jupiter in and your head. Train came out to perform a 20-minute set. I was grumpy, not really just because of the train thing, but because we were doing a 20-minute train set, and it was 11 p.m. Eastern time because we had already reached the amount of time that the whole game should have taken just to get through that first half, 49 to 20. Uh, yeah, that led, by the way, to Kevin Steele being um, fired at Clemson and Dabo Sweeney goes to hire Brent Venables. Boom, rest is history. Two national championships, lots of defensive linemen into the NFL draft. You grew up in the Chicago area. You get used to being delayed by 20-minute train sets. <laughs> ah, oh, man. Contact yeah. your Alderman. Um, that's not the worst halftime show we've had in Orange Bowl history, though. What's it, what is it? Ashley Simpson. Remember this? Oh, God. God, it was like 03 or 04, maybe 05. I, I don't was remember. That, what. Was that a bowl game or Thanksgiving? I can't remember. That was the Orange Bowl, dude. I'm like, oh, I'm, okay, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure. I'm going to put it in a private check. We lose Bud. Yeah. It's in the. Uh, oh, there we go. Your mic's, your audio's going out. Okay. Is it better now? There yeah, we go. We're good. All right. I just put in the, the link to it in the private chat. Um, uh, maybe, maybe include this in the show notes, but uh, <laughs> Ashley Simpson at the Orange Bowl is I said the Orange Bowl is pretty epic. She was actually like booed hard during the Orange Bowl. It was, it was amazing. <laughs> Sad. <laughs> All right, Second uh, best Simpson by far in that family. To the offensive side of the ball for Alabama. Um, oh, one one last thing. So in the chat. There was some comments before we got started. And I do love that you guys come and hang out. It is part of the community. And this offseason is a great time for us to really, you know, breathe a little bit and, and enjoy continuing the conversation. Is, Ke- is Kevin Steele a placeholder for Jeremy Pruitt? Is he just sitting on the spot 
until Pruitt can get his name cleared and then you can get the hire. You want to talk crazy conspiracy theories, Tom. That's a really good conspiracy theory. So you're saying like it's a Hugh Freeze situation where it's like, oh, no, we just got to wait it out, wait it out, and then they'll finally let us hire him? Maybe. So Pruitt's NCAA case has not been adjudicated yet, right? If the things that are alleged are proven true, the odds that you get a show cause out of that, based on my opinion of what happens with prior case history, are quite high. So given where they are in the timeline, the chance that that is settled before this season starts, I would say is very low. Oh yeah. No, no, I I do not think that he's a placeholder and I Um, do not think Alabama can hire him with the case hanging over his head like it is. And I'm going to say Kevin Steele is the head is the defensive coordinator for Alabama for the 2023 season. I don't, I don't think there's anything uh, that is that is going to change that. All right, what about the offensive side of the ball? Tommy Reese is going to be leaving Marcus Freeman's staff at Notre Dame, and he will be taking over the Alabama offense. Before we look to the Notre Dame side of this, uh, what is a Tommy Reese offense? Uh, it's not what you saw in 2022. Well, we have quarterbacks, yeah, multiple um, quarterbacks that uh, potentially are going to change exactly what the offense is going to look like. I mean, it's it's modern pro stylish, really. I think is the best way to in a lot of RPO kind of stuff. When he when he's able to do what he wants to do, there's a lot of RPO stuff in there, and it's still kind of built on the run game. But just you know, it's it's not that different from what Alabama has been doing the last few years. Honestly, it's just last year in South Bend because of the quarterback situation and the receiver situation, which we've gone over a billion times. They weren't really able to do any of it. Like they were. Tommy Reese was calling plays with one arm tied behind his back, and it just was very easy for other teams to defend. And I think at Alabama, he's probably going to have better pieces around him this year, and we'll we'll see. I mean, I don't think it's a bad hire. Like when Reese first got the hire at Notre Dame, I was on here all the time saying, "I the one thing that stands out about me to Reese because I don't know jack shit about calling a game during a game." But the one thing I do know is if a if somebody on the if an offensive coordinator makes a play call where I'm just like, what the hell are you doing? Like if I understand it, then it makes sense. That to me is a red flag. When I would watch Notre Dame games, Tommy Reese rarely made those kind of play calls where it's like, why are you running this to the short side? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Why are you doing you know in in these kind of situations? It all made sense. It might not have always worked, but it always made sense. So if, as far as that aspect goes. I think it's a good hire. I think he's going to have a talented team, and I think you know it's probably going to work out pretty well. It's worked out. I mean, it's worked out for every offensive coordinator in Alabama for the most part. Yeah, I mean, like your odds of having success at Alabama as the OC are are really really high. Uh, I, I think there's just degrees of, of the success, right? Like, I don't think we were in love with, with how Bill Bill O'Brien called it. Part of that was probably some of their personnel stuff. I think if we're going to talk about that with the lack of receivers Bama had this year, we should probably also discuss. Like, look, Notre Dame's receivers didn't exactly scare anybody. Now, should they have gone gone more RPO heavy? Maybe, possibly. Uh, but like that, a way to you know to combat that is is we're playing a lot of man, which I think teams got a lot of those looks against the Irish because they weren't really scared of what Notre Dame had out wide. And then you also had a quarterback injury very early in the year. So, I I, I want to take like the inputs of the market here. So Brian Kelly, who we consider to be a very good head coach, and Nick Saban, who we consider to be the best head coach of, of all time have now both pursued this guy. Mm-hmm. Now, he wasn't oh, Saban's yeah. first choice, obviously, but it, 
I think that does tell me something. Like he wanted Tommy Reese to come with him to LSU. Brian Kelly did, and obviously Saban has now hired him. So they, he has to think highly of him. They must like what he does schematically, and you know we'll see. Like, does Notre Dame's offense improve with a different play caller there? How does Alabama look? I, I'm not going to bash the hire. I, I didn't necessarily love what they did at Notre Dame, but I think personnel probably had something to do with that. We've said we've talked to different coaches who played Notre Dame this year that basically said their receivers sucked and they didn't scare us at all, and we played them in a disrespectful manner because of that. It's Bud Elliott at Bud Elliott three on Twitter. I understand that he already has his own column for all the Notre Dame fans out there and the threads that continue to point uh, his direction for all Notre Dame wide receiver analysis. Can so we, the wait, go ahead. can we talk about the spicy part of this though? The Brian Kelly side of this or the Marcus Freeman side of this? Well, I mean, Brian Kelly tried to get Reese, from our understanding, to follow him to LSU to be his offensive coordinator last year. Reese stuck around at South Bend. And then a year later, Reese is leaving Notre Dame to go join Brian Kelly's top rival in the SEC West. Just, I don't, that's got to be awkward. I don't think it's awkward because Alabama and Nick Saban is one of those like, well, of course you're going to go and yeah. like, you know, co- coach on the same uh, staff in the same yeah. position that has launched uh, Lane Kiffin into a head coaching position that has launched Steve Sarkeesian into a head coaching position. Like there is a Tommy Reese career aspect of this. That's like, I go there and I'm successful. Then there are going to be head coaching opportunities for me. Um, and if that's something that he wants to do, then this is a, a great, honestly, it's a better spot for him to be able to take that next step than it would be to try to hang around in his current post at Notre Dame. There's no reason why you would stay at Notre Dame as opposed to going to Alabama. Like the, the personnel quality is just better. And the track record of guys moving up, like even Bill O'Brien, moved up. He's the OC of the Patriots now. That's a better job than being OC at Alabama. So you take it, you get a big job off it, especially on the offensive side. On the defensive side, those guys haven't really all worked out. But I mean, Loxley went to Maryland. Uh, mm. Kiffin went went mm-hmm. to Ole Miss. I mean, like the, the guys who have been OCs for Nick, I think they probably improved their understanding of defense as well because Nick's such a defensive genius. And I think it probably helps them become better head coaches because of it. So – this is Reese's ticket to, to get a head coaching job. Ty Simpson, starting quarterback, probably. If we're to look at, if we're to try to sort of read the room, consider who the OC is, and, and consider what we've got there with Simpson and Milrow kind of as the, the two that are, are running for first team snaps here in spring ball. I don't know. I, I think Tommy's going to be looking for somebody who can throw the ball further than 10 yards down the field. That's for sure. I will say, I don't think it'll be Sam Hartman who posted a, a workout video <laughs> with, with Notre Dame's logo on it. So it, yeah. for all the thought of like, can Hartman follow Tommy Reese to, uh, to Alabama? I, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I know the, well, the chat hasn't even suggested it. It was just my initial thought. I know Danny Cannell. Yeah. Danny texted it. He was week. like, can yeah. Hartman go too? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which I think actually you could technically, I, if the first transfer used was a non-grad transfer, then you still have the, the, the grad transfer in the chamber, right? I, I mean, I don't even know if he's enrolled, right? I mean, if he's just floating out there, not enrolled somewhere, he could go and enroll somewhere else, right? I think so. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, he hasn't, he has not enrolled. If he has not enrolled in school and if he has not played a snap, then I think a lot of these transfer hurdles, you know, we can, we can just slide out one for another and still get your one time transfer waiver um, taken care of. But yeah, I, Hartman's going to stay at Notre Dame. I mean, it's, it's the, it's a very different, like, okay, you're at Wake Forest, right? You're going to go to Notre Dame in terms of just overall, like, campus, university. Like, we're, I mean, sure, we're going from Baptist to Catholic. But we're still going to you know the still smaller private school kind of approach. It's it's a good fit for him, right? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, like on on Reese, I, in his mind, he always has to be the guy that lost out to Freeman for the head coaching gig. Now, I think Freeman was much more proven than he was as a coordinator. So Notre Dame made the right choice if the choice was to pick between those two. And I don't necessarily think it was much of a choice, but. It still has to be weird, like work with the guy who got the promotion over you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, I I actually think this can be a positive for the Irish as well. Okay, so I, let's I, go there. And by the way, uh, apparently um, Hartman is enrolled you know, in a yeah. ground program right now. So that's that's that. All right, where, who's going to be the offensive coordinator for Sam Hartman? Where does Notre Dame go for its OC opening? I don't know. Um, Charlie I mean, Weiss Jr. <sighs> The prodigal son returns. I'm just saying, he's a, he's a pretty like I, I, the testing the marketplace. You know, talk about like whatever the market says. I would say that Charlie Weiss Jr. as a, a if it's green or red, I would say his little like ticket is green. He's considered a, a coach that is rising in the industry. He's had success. Come, I mean, he's there with Lane Kiffin, so it's not like he is you know totally running his own show without a lot of influence from the head coach. But I. He grew up around the program. If uh, if I don't know how Notre Dame fans would feel about it, but he uh, he definitely definitely came to mind for me. According to the chat, the names right now are Andy Ludwig and Joe Moorhead. Both would be good hires. And if it's Joe Moorhead, goodness gracious! If if Joe Moorhead, Sean Lewis, and um, Candle all step down from sitting head coaching jobs to go take Power Five mm-hmm. offensive coordinator jobs. I that is going to be a kind of a sad off season for the Mac. I talked about it. The, the salaries that are offered now, it's hard to get hired as a head coach from a Mac school to a power five school because it's hard to justify taking a guy from 700 grand, if even that, and then giving him 8 million. All right. You want to get spicy here? Yeah. If Marcus Freeman lands Andy Ludwig or Joe Moorhead, are we going to have to do a show where we say that that Freeman out hired Nick Saban, even though Saban took Freeman's OC? I would think it's a. I, I would rather have Ludwig or Moorhead. Yes, I, I kind of just, like. It's at least on par and track record. Mm-hmm. I think. I think their track record is better than than, than what Tommy Reese. Longer has. for sure. Mm-hmm. Now the thing is, if you go work in Tuscaloosa, it's very well reported at this point that you have to like use Nick's terminology and run, you know, the Alabama offense, which can have a lot of elements of what you want to run, but it's going to be like, hey, we run mainly this stuff. You could run your flavor of this stuff. The terminology is going to remain the same, which is something Saban actually did that was smart for a while because he had so much coaching turnover. He didn't want kids have to learn new terminology three times in their four-year career. But uh, I, I wonder if you have more freedom to run what you want to run under under uh, Freeman. I would 
I would assume you are so. going to have. I, I don't know what Marcus Freeman's individual approach is to the offensive side of the ball, but you've got more. I'm just going to recklessly speculate that you've got more freedom to do things your way under 130, 129 FBS head coaches <laughs> than you do when you're stepping into Nick Saban's Alabama coaching staff meeting room. It's a lot of yes, sir. I and I'm on it. That kind of stuff. That's what I expect. Uh, other so Joe Moorhead or Andy Ludwig. Andy Ludwig would be a, a bad loss for Utah and a great hire for Notre Dame. Um, any any other names out there that stand out? It's the typical message board stuff bringing up Joe Brady, but Joe Brady's not coming back to college. He's just not. Does he want to recruit? No. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the man probably could have had any college head coaching job he wanted after what he did at LSU, and he just said, no, I'm going to the NFL later, guys. Yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> I do think that it, an important part of this hire will be quickly establishing the relationship with C.J. Carr, Lloyd Carr's grandson, who is committed um, to Notre Dame. He's a top five quarterback for us right now in our rankings at 24-7 sports. Like, I think he's a good player. Again, early rankings are like, – they're very volatile, you know, but we, we, we feel good about him as a player. So that is an important thing because the Irish obviously did not hang on uh, to their chances for Dante Moore this cycle. And don't we give um, Freeman some credit for that recruiting win? I mean, I, I'm I'm just going yes, off of I, a, a lot. Of, so. I'm going off a lot of CJ Carr shared photos of him and Freeman. Right? It seems like Freeman spent a lot of time locking it down. The uh, the grandson of one of the the most successful Michigan head coaches uh, in program history. I mean, name me a successful program at the national elite level where the head coach is not the best recruiter on the team, or damn near it. Kirby's a hell of a recruiter. Nick is still a hell of a recruiter. I think Ryan Day is actually a pretty damn good recruiter. Harbaugh is kind of such an interesting dude. Mm-hmm. That, uh, so, And we've also discussed at length that you, Michigan is at the top of the sport on the field. Michigan is not at the top of the sport in the recruiting rankings. I think Harbaugh is kind of like P.J. Fleck in either you vibe with him or you very much don't. And if you do vibe with him, he's a very good recruiter. Hmm. You like, yeah, if you like what he's putting down. All right. I mentioned Jason Candle, the uh, head coach at Toledo, is was on the um, the list of candidates to be interviewed by Mario Cristobal for the offensive coordinator position. Mario Cristobal now has an offensive coordinator and a defensive coordinator opening. What do we got our eyes on as, uh, as Mario looks to try to build his staff out ahead of, I'll say it again, an extremely, extremely important 2023 season? for the trajectory of that program, because after going five and seven in year one, there, there needs to be noticeable improvement for you to be able to go back to the recruiting trail and go lock down another top 10 staff class. Um, Tom, you got any ideas on this one? Cause like defensively, I kind of have a hunch, but it's just I don't have any idea who's going to be the offensive coordinator. I don't know how we've talked about this. So I don't know how attractive the job is. I don't know who wants to be the offensive coordinator for Mario Cristobal based on the track record of offensive coordinators for Mario Cristobal. And also just the bigger picture, no matter who it is, I understand that Miami had a rough season in the first year going five and seven. 
But losing both your coordinators after one year is very seldom a good thing, whether you're pushing them out or they're choosing to leave on their own. There's really no way to spin it as this is fine. This is great. Everything's going to be wonderful. I don't think it's a good sign. It doesn't mean they can't overcome it. It doesn't mean that Miami can't win under Mario Cristobal or won't win under Mario Cristobal. It's just if I'm a Miami fan right now, I'm a little worried. So uh, offensively, you're stepping into a situation where I think the offensive line will be better. So Zion Nelson, because he got hurt early in the year, really didn't play for them. So he decided to come back and not do the NFL draft thing. Van Dyke got hurt. He should be back healthy. They feel good enough about him that they did not pursue a starter through the transfer portal. Uh, Receiver-wise, I am still very skeptical of Miami's receivers. Colby Young came on a little bit towards the end of the season. Restrepo was hurt for long stretches last year, and the offense really kind of cratered when he was out running backs, I think are, are fine. They may not have like a huge difference maker, but I think they're, they're largely okay there. You take the job. I think you're going to be able to show a lot of improvement over the numbers they put up last year. So from that standpoint, your stock will rise from the other standpoint, which is how much is Mario Cristobal going to put his thumb on this offense? I think that is ever present in your mind. If you're considering this job. So I don't know who they're going to hire. Like Jason Candle's been out there, you know, reported for uh, as one of their top uh, targets. I heard the Doug Nussmeyer stuff. That's extremely interesting to me because I think Gary Nussmeyer, I have a hunch he might be the best quarterback in LSU's quarterback room right now. So if you get him, could you also get Garrett to play for his dad? I don't know, potentially. Defensively, I, I wouldn't put a lot of money on this, but if I had to bet, I would – Guess Charlie Strong, who's already on the staff, yeah. is mm. pretty tight with Mario, has been a DC before. That that's my my hunch. Um, the Brad in the chat asks, isn't the dig on Candle that he's not the best X's and O's coach? I generally think that Toledo's offenses have been pretty good. The dig on Candle is that he can't cover a spread mm-hmm. as a favorite. And their game extremely gambling. Yeah, yeah. It's like an extremely gambling centric angle. Like I if I'm a fan of a team, I am not frustrated by the hire of Jason Candle as an offensive coordinator, but understand that to my knowledge, most of that spoke smoke is from gamblers who are just so frustrated at this Toledo team that because of game management and other issues seems to be underperforming its models and its projections in a very consistent manner. They underperform their talent all Mm -hmm. the time. Like, mm-hmm. That team should run the Mac every year, and it doesn't. But they did just win. They, they did just win. And that title game, boy, it was ripping fingernails off to get through it. But they found a way, found a way to get that 17-7 to win against the Ohio Bobcats. Another little bit of assistant coaching carousel news. Uh, not Brian, Bill O'Brien is not the only uh, assistant coach that is going to be off to the NFL to join the New England Patriots staff because Adrian Clem, who was previously serving as the associate head coach, run game coordinator, and offensive line coach at Oregon, will also be going back to the Pats. Obviously, he's got his own history with the Pats. It, another situation where if I'm looking at the individual, I'm like, okay, yeah, it makes total sense. But if I'm looking at Oregon, which already lost its offensive coordinator in Kenny Dillingham to Arizona State, Listen, we gave Dan Dan Lanning's getting all the flowers here in the offseason in terms of what he's done uh, with some tr- with some transfer portal work, with what he's done with some uh, big time recruiting wins, both in December and in February. So is this 
Does this feel like a significant loss for the Ducks? Yeah, to me it does. I I, I think Adrian Clem's a really good coach. So and and Oregon, Oregon played really good this year along the offensive line. They landed number one offensive line transfer commit a Johnny Cornelius. Uh, to me, this is a fairly big deal, and I will be interested to see who they're able to replace him with. Uh, I, this is one of the tests that you can never know when you're hiring a first-time head coach. How good are they at replacing the dudes they lose? And this is only a problem generally if you hire well the first time. So, like the, the guys who who just suck from, from you know from Jump Street, they don't have this problem because you end up you know like having to replace guys who get who you fire. When you lose dudes to promotions, that's one of the qualities that coaches who succeed in the long term have. And it's just it's an unknowable. We we just don't know how well they'll be able to do it. Same thing with Marcus Freeman, right? Very promising head coach, 10 years, Freeman and Lanning. How well will they, will they replace these assistants who left for better jobs? I don't know. What's interesting to me is Clem's leaving to be the offensive line coach in New England. Yeah. That's one of the positions that maybe some fans of a certain program in the Big Ten were hoping that a certain man could park his son at. Oh, that's right. When did we I did we make reference to that on Thursday's show? We were we just like going in on Iowa and then we talked about how it was, it was just a tough like you and Hassel. We was that off air talking about you and Hassel going back and forth on the Iowa, Illinois back and forth. And we said, Oh, Iowa's had a rough, rough week anyway, because they they already got it announced that they were not anticipating that that Brian Ferentz went um that Kirk Ferentz almost spoke Harbaugh with we're not mm-hmm. anticipating any changes to the staff. And, of course, Iowa football fans furious mm-hmm. uh, because what that means is that Brian Ferentz will likely be your offensive coordinator. Oh, Brian Ferentz is going to be your offensive coordinator at Iowa next year. I mean, how pissed are you if you're Cade McNamara and Eric All? Like, there's no way you, you decided to commit that early in the cycle well, to Iowa unless they're giving him a huge bag that I don't know about. And were they told? Back. Were they told that they were changing the offensive coordinator, or were they told that they were going to change the offense? That's what's. So I mean, there, you could. St- I I understand if you are an Iowa fan, you have absolutely no reason to give them the benefit of the doubt that they are going to change anything. You should very much take an "I will believe it when I see it" approach. But that could be what's happening. We could see Iowa. Maybe not. I don't. They're not going to come out four wide every freaking play. But maybe they just kind of, you know, add some wrinkles and stuff that they haven't been doing in the past. Maybe they modernize a little bit. We'll see. I'll, I'll give them. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But yeah. Fans should. <laughs> you you can sell to Cade McNamara. Listen, we've only been having this offense because of what we've had at quarterback, and I I believe this is factual. Iowa has not had a quarterback with the raw talent or the projection or potential of Cade McNamara in quite some time. So, you know, you can sell him like, hey, the only reason we've been doing this is because we haven't had the dude and you're the dude. So you come here, we unlock it, it opens up. So I I could understand. I would not be pissed if I was Cade McNamara. You knew what you were getting into. Even if he replaced the offensive coordinator, Kirk's still there. This is still Iowa football. There's a... There's a measure of expectation, no matter who is the offensive coordinator, in terms of the way that this this team is going to handle business. They have no leverage over him. His contract is like you know, like a Mel Tucker or Jimbo contract, mm-hmm. right? It's just so big that there's no way you could possibly buy it out anytime. And what are they going to say? No, like like we're going to make you make a change. He'd be like, cool, fire me, pay me. I'm not firing my son. Yeah, because. Um, 
the the hope was that Brian would get rehomed along mm-hmm. with Bill O'Brien, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's not a firing, so you don't have any frustration at family dinner, and now you can you know go and make a hire that would lead to uh, other changes. So, yeah, they yep. the that news came out. I guess as part of the signing day press conferences, the we do not anticipate any changes to the staff. Well, right, for instance, to Miami. That defense will stay so fresh. Like, for instance, plus Cristobal, they'll run about 31 plays a game. You know, <laughs> uh, just fantastic. My world for a Brian Ferentz hired by Mario Cristobal season. Oh, oh. I mean, who, quarterback battle. Who cares? <laughs> uh, good stuff. All right, coming up on the other side, a lot of news coming out from the end of last week about Texas, Oklahoma, and the move from the Big 12 to the SEC. We thought that that would be a good time to review how we got here, what's next, and what we expect it will look like when Texas and Oklahoma do jump from the Big 12 to the SEC. Next. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Big 12 SEC Texas Oklahoma story. It's been kind of wild. You know, 18 months 562 days to be exact since the Houston Chronicle first reported that Texas and Oklahoma had approached the SEC about possible membership back on July 21, 2021. Um, Then, you know, we've gotten all the way to Friday where reports of an early entry to the leagues have stalled. Now, back in July 2021, the news was that Texas and Oklahoma were going to join in the summer of 2025, uh, running out their existing contract with the Big 12. If we continue down this no-deal path that we seem to be on after the meetings last week, they will join in the summer of 2025. So in the last 18 months, in a sense, nothing has changed, but in reality, everything has changed. Because in September of 2021, after just a few months after the announced exit, the Big 12 makes the move to bring on Cincinnati, UCF, Houston, and BYU. At the time, the language was they would be joining no later than summer 2024, which would be only about one season of awkwardness. But then in June of 22, Cincinnati, UCF, Houston, BYU announced they'll be joining July 1, 2023. Then later in June 2022, USC and UCLA announced their move to the Big Ten, which will happen in 2024. So now Texas and Oklahoma, which kickstarted this entire wave of conference realignment, are going to be the last set pieces to move. In December 22, we get news that there is, quote, gaining momentum towards a deal that could bring Texas and Oklahoma to the SEC for the 2024 season, leaving the Big 12 one year early and arriving at the same time that USC and UCLA uh, will be making their move from the Pac-12 to the Big 10. And then here in February, we've got reports that talks are stalling. 
Dennis Dodd, our, I mean, so much good reporting out of this. CBS Sports' Dennis Dodd said that an offer was made to the Big 12 recently heading into this round of meetings, but that offer was rejected. He's got a great explainer on it, and he also notes in another report that it's, quote, not dead yet, uh, but certainly things are slowing down. Pete Thamel, he reports that early exit talks have broken down. While Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated uh, quotes multiple sources, including one that says that the situation is still fluid. So as we try to unpack all of this for Texas and Oklahoma, before we get to um, you know the the good stuff, like what this is going to look like, are Texas and Oklahoma well positioned? Who benefits from them being stuck in the Big Twelve longer? All that. What, based on y'all's read of the situation, seems to be the big hurdles preventing Texas and Oklahoma from leaving the Big 12 and joining the SEC? I think there's only one hurdle, and I think it's pretty obvious. When Fox decided to pay the Big 12 all that money for its television rights, it wasn't so they could show Iowa State and Baylor games on Big Noon Saturday. It was so they could show Texas and Oklahoma games so they can get the ratings, so they can get the advertising revenue, which helps offset the money they have to pay the schools and gets them the money that they want. If Oklahoma and Texas go to the SEC, they lose all those games because the SEC will be exclusively broadcast on ESPN. So unless there's some kind of make weight where they can give them the money that they are going to lose for those games, there is no reason for Fox to give ESPN what it wants. These are competitors for college football. They're not They're not going to try to make life better for the other one unless they're getting something significant in return. So it's egos. You know, the money will come from somewhere, but ego-wise, Fox will not let ESPN have its candy soon. Right. It, Tom nailed it. it so it, it's, it's your disagreement about valuation, and like I think it was Pete Thamel who said that, uh, that Fox views Texas and Oklahoma – as more than half of the value mm-hmm. of the Big 12 contract, which if you look at recruiting rankings or if you look at like the stories people actually click on, I think Fox might be low on that. Like there's two teams in the Big 12 that click nationally, and there's, you know, 12 other teams that quick or that click regionally or locally. But then there's also the saving face and the ego thing. Like he said, like to me, that's big there too. I'm sure if you're Georgia and you had to cancel your non conference game with Oklahoma at, at the direction of the SEC, uh, because they were anticipating those schools joining, you're probably kind of annoyed. If you're ESPN, you're probably very annoyed because mm-hmm. you, like, wouldn't you want to have nine conference games to be able to broadcast? Like that's extra you know, revenue, extra inventory for you to sell against. But look, Fox is enforcing its rights just as much as ESPN is here, mm-hmm. right? Like they need to get their pound of flush for those guys leaving. And you know, if I'm them, I'm I'm asking for you know quite a few rights to, to future games. Yeah, the asking that there are basically like trades that have been offered, like the deals that are potentially going on here are between ESPN and Fox, and they involve uh, way like this is so much more complicated than exit fees. And just that, like the allowing them out would require a negotiation, allowing them out of the contract a year early. And that negotiation is absolutely being played by the television partners. And so they are like talking about swapping inventory to try to make the price right. And as we sit here in the wake of a a blockbuster Kyrie Irving trade, I mean, it's like they keep running the trade machine and the trade is not successful. They, They continue to try to say, all right, so, and I, I do not know if this truly is it, but it's like, okay, we'll give you uh, like a, a week three, you know, this, this Saturday at this time slot, we'll give you this, 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 and this. And, and they just can't come to an agreement on it at all. I'm, 
I, I don't know that math and the dollar value of all those um, of, of all those different time slots and and what regions tend to matter more or less. But this is a, a fascinating look into a sport that continues to be run by television executives. So no, go ahead, Tom. No, you go. All right, like I think one of the things just to try to explain to people like how you could value it so differently. If you're Fox, the drop off in revenue that you would have in 24 from losing the, the, those games in 24, as Fox as a company is clearly trying to step up how much it does with college ball coverage. Like they just hired Chris Felica off game day. Like they're hiring other people. They're trying to make Joel Klatt into a really big national figure on on par with like her curb street. So you know if you look at what they're doing. They're going to need that cash coming in in 24. So for them, not only is it here's how much we make off Texas, it's like here's how much we would not make, right? And ESPN doesn't really care about that. They're like, dude, we just care about the value of the game, not the drop off that you would have to having to you know, do Baylor Kansas State, which would be a stinker on Big Noon Game Day in terms of ratings. It might be a, a, a great game. So ESPN doesn't care about that. Fox has to, I think, go for even more then these games are probably actually worth because of like, they're going to want those games and that revenue coming in. Now. The only way I think that this happens at this point is either a ESPN in Texas and Oklahoma agree to a financial sum with Fox in which they just genuinely buy themselves out of it or B college football playoff expansion is coming. The TV rights will be up for bid. ESPN gives Fox an extra playoff game or two. That I think would probably clinch them allowing Oklahoma and Texas to move for those games. Cause I don't really think, like I read Dellinger wrote, you know, you could see maybe Texas and Oklahoma schedule some road games against other Big 12 schools, which would then be broadcast on Fox. I don't really think that's going to do it. I think it's got to be like Fox is going to, Fox doesn't have to do anything. You're going to have to overpay in a way to get them. And I think that would probably just be playoff games. And again, that's like for those of us that are just college football fans looking in on this, this is why it's awkward. And this is why there is so much momentum to just get us settled because 2024 is when uh, the SEC is going to be all in with ESPN. ESPN wants to be able to debut its robust SEC package mm -hmm. with the new look SEC, including uh, Texas and Oklahoma. Uh, the college football playoff is expanding in 2024. So right now, we if we follow the contract, we are looking at a world where the 2024 season begins and USC and UCLA are in the Big Ten. And we've got a 12-team college football playoff and Texas and Oklahoma are going to Orlando to go play UCF. Like with this one last awkward year, the SEC, ESPN are going to try to get all the chess pieces moved before this big page-turning moment that will be the 2024 season. Uh Fox, the Big 12, and uh, and everyone who could benefit from Texas and Oklahoma staying in the Big 12 a little longer, uh, they're not they're not in a hurry to go ahead and uh, and get this settled. I got a question: Do Texas and Oklahoma benefit from playing in the Big 12 longer? Competitive, so. uh, competitively mostly. So financially, um, there are differences in the per school payouts that you get from the media rights deals. But Oklahoma and Texas, according to analysis that I trust has already been able to use that we're headed to the SEC approach on the recruiting trail. Like the idea that you are going to be, uh, you know, upping your recruiting game was one of the things a lot of people pointed to when Texas and Oklahoma made their move to the SEC, that they're going to be able to be in this, you know, big boy league. If you want to go to the NFL, you know, you got to be playing SEC football, this, that, or the other Texas and Oklahoma just had great recruiting classes 
And some of the strength of that, it has been suggested, has been that those coaches and those coaching staffs can say, hey, look, like this is, this is going to be an SEC program soon. We're going to be in the SEC soon. But then you don't actually have to play an SEC schedule. You get to be on the recruiting trail selling we're an SEC program, but on Saturdays, you're playing a Big 12 schedule. Financially, it's probably not the same. Competitively, I think as with these you know newish tenures, Steve Sarkeesian and certainly very new for Brent Venables, if they could just keep stacking wins and stacking recruiting classes, I think it might benefit them competitively to stay in the Big 12 for two more years. What are the odds that... Texas and Oklahoma are the first expanded playoff team from the Big 12. Oh, yeah. 75%, 80%? High. G- given the way they're recruiting, I mean, they had the third and fourth rated recruiting classes in the country. They also had the third and fourth rated recruiting classes in the new SEC. Within the Big 12, nobody competes on that level for players. Now, they do occasionally lose games. I think a lot of it is you know culture and, and coaching and whatnot, but as far as just pure projecting and the talent they're bringing in, you have to think they're going to be the overwhelming favorite to, to get those, those bids. So, uh, And then if you're the SEC, you're like, hey, we just added the Big 12's playoff team from 2024. <laughs> so like, you get to kind of brag about that. Now, you'd much rather have them in 24 in your league anyway, but uh, for coaching staffs that are still trying to get their feet under them, this is maybe not the worst thing in the entire world. That's you what know, was I, ringing around in my head for sure. I think there's a lot of validity to what you're saying, yes. Um, so what is it? What, the SEC league office, I think, is frustrated. I don't. Have, I'm not reporting that, but I think that when you mentioned the getting Georgia to drop its Oklahoma uh, game, the, there has been a lot of movement within the SEC office that was under the belief that this could get done in time for 2024. You know, they are holding off on announcing any kind of like scheduling models or, or trying to set up any kind of future schedule. Everything is waiting on the arrival of Texas and Oklahoma, what does the SEC look like with Texas and Oklahoma in the fold when they join? Looks pretty good, Chip. Yeah. The, <laughs> I, I do they think still that do East-West? The, East, West, or the do model they, they have to go with is 3-6. Three, is, is three, if they're going to a nine-game yeah. conference slate, it, you really – it's going to, you just can't do it East West. It's not going to work. That's why, that's why the big 10 doesn't work going. I mean, honestly, like I think they'll go divisionless once UCLA and USC join. If you go three, six, that's the best way to do this. I think it, it creates the most connectivity year to year. And you don't have people going long stretches without playing the best teams. I think the teams that really benefit from this are named Vanderbilt, Missouri, and Kentucky and South Carolina. Because those are the teams that play the weakest conference schedules. If you take out like their own team quality, they're in the East. And they also they really benefit on an annual basis from only playing eight conference games. If you add an extra conference game to those teams, you're more than likely adding an extra loss to the schedule. Not a guaranteed loss, but just a fractional loss for sure, you know, on a year-to-year basis. So the bottom teams in the East are the ones that benefit the most from Texas and Oklahoma not joining right now. Yeah, three that that model, by the way, is three annual rivals. Mm-hmm. And then it, to round out the nine game conference schedule, you play six teams one year and six teams the next. So in a sense, you have gotten a chance to see all 15 teams in this 16 team SEC over the course of two years. If a player spends four years at a program, 
then he has the opportunity to play in every single stadium because you've done home and away with the uh, the rotating six in addition to your three annuals. I don't know how if anybody would ever agree to this, but if you're ESPN, you own every single SEC game already, right? Would you not just push for a 10-game conference schedule? Because you're, odds are your non-conference games, let's be real, we, we, we talked about how Fox and ESPN are in charge of whether Texas and Oklahoma can go to the SEC quick. They'll probably have an impact on non-conference scheduling too. Like, you should schedule teams that are part of the ESPN family. Don't schedule Fox teams. And then... Well, so there's all the SEC-ACC rivalries anyway. That's what I'm saying. So you've got those, and you're going to see that kind of... And you're going to see G5s and FCS teams that will be coming to your school so we can broadcast it. We don't want you scheduling road games against Big Ten or Big 12 or Pac-12 teams. So do you not just push a 10-game schedule at that point if you're ESPN because you've owned all the rights to all the games anyway? Probably should. That's the... Yeah. That, that's the way down the line to me. I don't yeah. think it's that far down the line. Ooh, okay. Like within the 2020s? I don't think it will. I don't know when they'll agree to it. It would be a while, but I think you start seeing that floated because that's just typically how it works. The things get mentioned and then a few years go by and it just happens. I do want to point out the 3-6 model is not the same thing as pods. And the key Correct. difference in that in 3-6, you have three protected rivalries. In pods, you have four teams that are all playing the other three opponents mm-hmm. in that pot. I don't think that's what's being proposed or is most likely because that would really no mess with, with the rivals. Yeah. Yeah. No yeah. pods, just three protected rivals. The, the three six model is also not the same thing as the three six mafia. mafia. Yes. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Shout out to Juicy J. <laughs> um oh. um all right. Any, anything? All right, so let's let's finish on this. When do you think Texas and Oklahoma are joining the SEC? Twenty twenty five. Yeah. We, yeah. Twenty twenty five. Twenty twenty five. And uh, and I, I'll I'll go back to my 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 biggest thought here is that if I'm Brent Venables, I would like to have a shot win the Big Twelve or even just make that college football making the college football playoff even as an at large team is easier in the Big Twelve than it's going to be in the SEC. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we'll we'll be very interesting. And again, those uh all of this is coming if you are just sort of hearing about this story now. There were meetings last week of which the reporting going in was all right, this is going to be one of the big issues on the table. And the reporting coming out was like, well, things have stalled, talks have broken down. A few sources are saying something could still happen, but uh, but the gaining momentum reports that we had back in December of 2022 uh, no longer appear to be on the table. We will be back Wednesday, 11 a.m. Eastern time, so make sure that you subscribe and like. Hit, turn on the notifications, smash that bell so you know when we go live, and you can follow him on Twitter at Tom Fernelli. You can follow him at Bud Elliott 3 Follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you.